Okay, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the 20th Century Movie Club. My name is Dana. This is volume 11. We've made it past the, uh, you know, in podcasting terms, they always say you got to make it through the first 10 episodes. So we've made it through the first 10 episodes of this new series. So we're really excited about that. I am joined by my regular co-host, Mike. How are you today, sir? I'm well, Dana. Thank you. Excellent. And we brought on another special guest. I'd like to welcome my friend Jay Skipworth to the show. Jay, how are you today, sir? Dana, Mike, I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me on the show, man. Been a been a fan a long time and uh, glad to join in the fray now. Uh, we're super excited to have you on here. Before we get going, can you talk a little bit about your podcast? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I am the co-host and co-producer of a podcast called Filmstrip. You can search for Filmstrip Podcast on all of your podcatchers and you'll see it there. And we ran that podcast, my buddy Brian and I and uh, the other co-hosts, for about eight or nine years. And we took a year off uh, and we're now starting back. So new episodes to come, but we've got about 170 in the can. So uh, we made it past the 10 a long time ago. Uh, and uh, lots, of, lots of cool stuff uh, in the Filmstrip uh, world there, but you can follow Follow us uh, on social media at Filmstrip Pod. That's our Twitter account. And then uh, go to FilmstripPodcast.com. That's the, the podcast show's page. And thanks for letting me uh, plug the show. And again, thanks for having me on, Dana. I'm oh, really looking forward to it. Absolutely. And, you know, it's one of these things where there are literally hundreds and hundreds of thousands of podcasts out there. But I can tell you that your show is one that is in my very small contained playlist. And I love listening to your podcast. So I'm really excited about the new episodes that are coming out. Thank you. I really appreciate that. We have a lot of fun doing them. And I, I've been fortunate enough to work with a, a group that uh, we all just have a, a good rapport together. And Brian and Nick and Ron and I uh, find our way and weave our way through all manner of kinds of different films. And um, so and then we bring on my friend Kurt Fabish from uh, Canada, too, who's really kind of my he's my super like cinema expert. The rest of us look just like movies and stuff. But Kurt like knows all the intricacies. And so when I do something, I always say that when I do something classy, I bring Kurt on when I do the trash. It's everybody else. So, <laughs> so it's a lot of fun. That's awesome. That's excellent. And there'll be uh, there'll be links to your podcast in this episode show notes. So listeners, please make sure you check out the show. So, Jay, you know, the rules of the game on the, in the 20th century movie club uh we take turns recommending three films that were released before the year 2000 uh, in the interest of keeping this episode at about an hour um i am not going to make picks today i'm just going to be commenting on yours and mike's so since you are our special guest jay we're going to turn it over to you for the first pick of volume 11 of the 20th century movie club the floor is yours sir thank you guys i want to ask a real question just uh, to start with when i say the name stanley kubrick what's the first movie that comes to mind Mike? The Shining. Dana? You know what? Immediately, I went to Full Metal Jacket. Okay, no, that, that's fine. And those are excellent selections. But I'm going to take you back to a Stanley Kubrick film from 1957 Oof. called Paths of Glory, starring Kirk Douglas and George McCready. If you haven't seen this film, I will, have either of you seen it to begin with? Yes, I have. I've seen it several times. Fantastic. And this for me is one of those elusive films that I know exists. I know it's considered an, a seminal classic, but yet I have not seen it. So I'm very eagerly anticipating watching the film. And Don't feel bad about it. A few years ago, Kurt and I decided we wanted to go through Stanley Kubrick's filmography. So we started from the beginning. We didn't do the short films. We started with The Killing. And then we did Paths of Glory. And I had never seen all of it in context. I think I had seen people pieces here and there, like on AMC or different things growing up. But I watched this movie and was totally captivated by it. And Mike, I thought of you when I was thinking of this pick, because this is a war movie, but it's really a legal drama wrapped in a war. 
if you know anything about Kubrick movies, they're all based off books. And so this is a book based off of a semi-true story. But it stars Kirk Douglas as Colonel Dax, who's the commanding officer of French soldiers who are sent on this suicidal attack for really nothing uh, other than the glory of the general that's sending them on it. And afterward, there's a big fallout. There's a lot of political machinations. And they decide we're going to put three guys on court-martial for cowardice. And Dax, who is an attorney in private life, has to defend these men against this, you know, sham of a court. And again, not to go – I know you don't have spoilers on the show or anything, Dana. The drama of this movie is all encapsulated in watching Kirk Douglas at the height of his powers – just roll through dialogue with these other men and particularly watching his nemesis, General Moreau, played by George McCready, who's a fantastic actor from a, a bygone era. The way they go at each other through multiple scenes together is just fantastic. I, I love this movie when it came out. It, it was a stage play first that failed because the anti-war sentiment and it just to give a little bit of a spoiler alert did not resonate with audiences. But when it made it to film, people really hooked into it. And it's made in 1957 and it's still contemporary today, even though none of us are French, you know, or anything like that. But the topics are still um, resonating today. And I just find it to be a, a fascinating film. And again, as someone who's a bit of a sucker for good legal drama and just good drama from time to time, and, and I do like my big epic war films, you get a little bit of all of that in this one. So Paths of Glory is one that definitely you need to, to put on your list. Dane, I'm glad you're going to do that. Mike, I'm, I'm really interested to hear what you think about it, having seen it. The Shining is the first Kubrick movie that popped into my head when you asked, but there is no question this is actually my favorite Kubrick movie. I, I love this movie. I, I can't speak highly enough about it. You're right, Jay. It is really more of a legal movie. That's how I actually saw it, is I... You know, when I was in undergrad, I started watching all these legal movies um, because I took a class on legal movies, uh, kind of similar to what we do on The People Versus. I took an entire class on that. And this was one of the ones that really just stood out for me. Uh, the legal stuff is actually kind of a uh, it's an it's the most important part of the movie, but it's also a fairly small part. What I love is that Kubrick really takes the time to set up all of the characters and, and, and really how this debacle that leads us to the courtroom scenes came to be. It's a, it's a short, but very, very purposeful movie. I mean, I think it only runs about 88 minutes, but there's so much purpose. There's not a single wasted shot, not a single wasted line of dialogue in this thing. This is really Kubrick at his most efficient and, you're right. Kirk Douglas is at the height of his powers. And, and and the one thing that will always stick with me, and I this is not a spoiler for any narrative purposes in the movie, but I will say that I think the last scene of this movie is perhaps the greatest scene that Kubrick ever filmed. It is just beautifully shot uh, and, and completely emotionally impactful. Uh, so, yeah, I, I can't recommend Passive Glory enough. I mean, it's a it's an absolute classic and, and it's one that I think everybody needs to see. It's honestly, if somebody were to ask me what the first Kubrick movie they should watch is, this would be the one that I would recommend because I, I think this one gets a lost a little bit uh, amongst some of his more famous work. But I think he's never better than he is in this movie. Can either of you speak to, I mean, I just did the math here. This movie came out 62 plus years ago. Can either of you speak to 
how old Kubrick was when he made this film. And it just kind of, it's mind boggling when you look at the, the span of his filmography and his directing career. I can actually tell you, I just pulled it up. Uh, he's, uh, he was, uh, born in 1928. This came out in 1957. So he would have been, if my math is correct, 29. Yeah, he's 29. Yeah. He wasn't even 30 when he made this. It's uh, again, his second full length feature. And I agree with what Mike said. If you're going to start with Kubrick movies, the killing is sort of fun, but it doesn't really feel like a Kubrick movie. It's just him sort of learning how to use a camera and, and in a way with with a full narrative structure. And, and he's got some interesting actors in it. But that's kind of a gumshoe, you know, uh, throwback to uh, early mobster and, and robber movies and stuff like that. Passive Glory, it, again, it's, it's a war movie is the setting, but it's a legal drama. And it's really a morality drama, too. And the and to watch Douglas again, just uh, like I said, at the height of his powers, just chewing up the scenery and spitting out the dialogue, and it's so believable. You get lost in the fact that the career that the man has had and how long we've seen him and and all the things he's done, and you forget about there was a time in his life when he just did parts and he just did things, and he talked about how much he was really impressed with Kubrick when they made this film together, and how he realized Kubrick got it. And he got the whole, you know, essence of what the the drama was about. And it's why they did Spartacus together years later, because he wanted to, you know, go back to that and recreate it. And at the time they both kind of needed it. Uh, but yeah, this this is a big one. And it's it's also from a war that we don't talk about a lot. I don't think World War One has been dramatized the way World War Two and maybe Vietnam have in cinema, particularly in, in you know, more modern cinema. And so to go back to a time, maybe something you gloss over in history class in 10th or 11th grade and maybe don't think about again, it gives you a different perspective on it. So it's a fantastic film and definitely one you need to add to your list. It's currently on the Criterion channel if you have access to that, but you can rent it on YouTube and stuff like that for like two bucks. Awesome. All right. Excellent first pick. All right, Mike, we'll turn it over to you for your first pick. Leave it to Jay to go all highbrow and shit to start us <laughs> off. Um, so my my first pick is about as far removed from Paths of Glory as you can possibly get. Um, but, you know, as is well known by people that listen to this show, the regulars, and I get tweets from people all the time about it. You know, comedy isn't my forte. It's not my favorite genre. But I don't want people to think I'm just a humorless bastard. So I'm actually going to recommend a comedy for my first recommendation. And it's one that when it came out, really didn't get good reviews at all. But I saw it when it came out in 1987 and I loved it and I've loved it ever since. I just rewatched it this week and I still love it. It holds up for me. And so my first recommendation is going to be uh, Carl Reiner's Summer School. And for those who haven't seen Summer School, Summer School is the story of a gym teacher played by Mark Harmon, who just as he's trying to get out of town at the end of school is uh, basically coerced into teaching summer school to the worst of the worst students who need to pass their standards standardized English test. And he has no idea how to teach English and they're not interested in learning. And it's just kind of about how they sort of come together as a group. It's a really, really lighthearted kind of fun little comedy. It's got a lot of actors that I love that I'll talk about in in a few more minutes. But have either of you seen Summer School? Uh, Jay, go ahead first. Yes, I love this movie. Great pick, Mike. I ended up recording this off of like HBO or something on a VHS tape and watching it constantly as a kid. Cause it hit me right in the sweet spot because when this movie came out, 
I was really getting into horror movies and, and uh, slasher movies. And of course, a big part of this is he's got two students in that class, Chainsaw and Dave, who are obsessed with the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And I think they even screen it in one of the scenes. But I I always have always liked Mark Harmon because at a young age, I saw that uh, TV movie where he plays Ted Bundy. And I thought he was awesome in that. And my parents, yes, let me watch that at a very young age. I had weird parents because um, we did we weren't allowed to dance when we went to church, but we watched horror movies, so you know, figure it out. <laughs> but anyway, I I knew who Mark Harmon was, so I was like, him, he's going to be the good guy, you know, because I thought I thought he was Ted Bundy, you know. <laughs> and of course, now he's you know super Navy cop and all these other things that he's done. But uh, I I love him in this movie. I think he's. Uh, funny in it. Kirstie Alley's even funny in it, and I wouldn't say that she's funny in much of anything. Um, but she's great in it. The whole the whole thing is just a big romp, and it's part of that '80s teen comedy that also could still appeal to adults. And I have a lot of friends that work in in education as teachers. I work in higher education, not as an instructor, but I have a lot of friends who are teachers, and they talk about similar scenarios where they get roped into teaching summer school and what it's like. And a guy that I was in a band with for years, he's a math teacher, went through a very similar scenario as this where he got roped into teaching one summer and did not want to do it, but he had to because he was the last one leaving the building. So I love this movie. It's, it's fantastic. The soundtrack on it's fun. It's totally worth a look. This is going to be one of those situations where I cannot believe that summer school is 32 years old. I remember seeing this movie probably, that came out in 87, probably 88, 89. By that point, my sister had a, my sister was 16, 17 years old and she was working at a, a video store and she got a lot of free movie rentals. And this was one that we constantly would watch all the time. I absolutely love this movie. Mike, this is a fantastic pick. A couple things I just, like, First of all, Mark Harmon in this film is one of the most charismatic, affable people on screen. And I just love his character. I love Chainsaw and Dave. And one of my favorite moments, and it's just kind of a very small moment inside of a, a movie that's just got so many great laughs in it, is when they're the classes have just started and they're not getting anything done. And the suggestion of going on field trips come. And I don't know if it was Chainsaw or Dave, but one of them already has like a book bag full of permission slips. And he passes them all out. And he's like, no, make sure you get your parents to sign them. And they all just forge their parents' signature and just hold them up in the air. And that's just one of the things I just love about the film. And, and, to, and to touch on something that Jay brought up is I had never even heard of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre until this movie. So this, I just, much like Jay, this was a film that introduced me to the Toby Hooper classic. I love the film. I'm not going to get into spoilers. I love how all the main students and, and the teachers, they all have their own sort of individual arcs that all sort of culminate at the end. And I just, I love it from, from him teaching one of them how to drive to the foreign exchange students. I mean, everything about this movie is just fantastic. And I, I'm looking it up right now on IMDb and Mike, you're correct. This movie did not get very good reviews when it came out. And that's a little bit surprising. And again, I, I wonder if this is a film that has been kind of lost to the sands of time a little bit, much like we discussed with, um, with the Sandlot. One other thing, one other thing I want to say about this film is this was a PG-13 rated movie at a time when a lot of these teen comedies were coming out were R-rated. And I think that was a, uh, a smart decision on Carl Reiner's part to, to, to go for the PG-13 and not go for the hard R, which would have been very easy to pull off in the 1980s. So Mike, love this movie. Great recommendation. And it's one I've actually seen. 
So I'll turn it back. Anyway. <laughs> I, I, I want to say one one last thing about about this one though. This also introduced to me the idea that the movies you watch could be used for subject matter in school because he he shows Texas Chainsaw Massacre to him, and of course they're doing commentary over it the whole time. So I'm sure that's where everybody got that idea for right. And it's sort of the early introduction to podcasting if you want to think about it like that. And then at the end of it, he says, "Okay, everybody, write a paper on Texas Chainsaw Massacre." And I thought you you can do that. And in high school, I literally was able to use. I think I used like Fright Night and something else for a, a source in a paper. And then later in college, I used uh, the Decline of Western Civilization Part 2 and Kiss lyrics in a paper that I was writing for a, a college class. And I got an A on it. So it, it taught us so many things. I wrote awesome. it. I wrote an English paper when I was a. I got to write an English paper in sophomore. I was either sophomore or junior on the merits of Die Hard 2. So I completely, <laughs> I completely I would love understand. To have read that, <laughs> Mike. You have uh, some 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 closing thoughts on summer school. I do, I do. First of all, I I got to do a poetry analysis of uh, Ice T's New Jack Hustler, his theme from New <laughs> awesome. Jack City in high school. So that was great fun. I'm so glad you guys liked both of this. So. For those who don't know, and I don't know that I've ever said this on the podcast, I used to teach college, and this movie uh, kind of encapsulates a lot of what my sort of teaching philosophy was of trying to reach students on a personal level rather than just working through a syllabus. And one of the things I wanted to say is is it makes a really nice double feature. The, I just want to kind of give this movie a recommendation because it doesn't fit in the 20th Century Movie Club, but it makes a really nice double feature with Accepted starring uh, Justin Long and Jonah Hill. That yes. is also a great sort of higher education comedy and they they sort of fit together in terms of critiques of our education system and our academic system and how the people who don't necessarily fall into our pre-defined categories get lost and get left behind so even though this is a light-hearted silly comedy if you really kind of dig into it there's a lot more going on in here than i think a lot of people give it credit for the only two other things i want to say you're both right about mark Harmon. i mean if you guys haven't if people haven't seen this movie if you want to see what charm incarnate looks like it's mark Harmon in this movie he is beautiful he is funny he is like he's literally just exactly the most charming human being that's ever lived in this movie. And then I have to give a shout out. You guys mentioned Chainsaw and Dave. Dean Cameron plays Chainsaw. This is the first of four Dean Cameron movies that I assure everybody will be recommended at some point on the 20th Century Movie Club because there are few actors that I loved in the late 80s and early 90s more than Dean Cameron. So this is one down. We got three more to go. I'll leave it for everybody to kind of guess what the other three might be. But uh, but yes, I love this movie. I'm glad you guys have seen it and glad you both love it. Can I just say that I'm just like having a hard time keeping it together because I haven't seen the movie in probably 10 years, but I'm thinking about the scene. And this is very, very minor spoiler where, where Shoop gets arrested. I won't say why. And he, he's still in roller skates and they just kind of push him into the cell. And, and the, the great line, who wants yeah. gum? <laughs> I just love yeah. Love no, I can, to this day, I cannot watch Texas Chainsaw Massacre with the end with Leatherface slinging that chainsaw around and not say, do the dance for me, baby, <laughs> because it's in my head from this yep. movie. That's awesome. All right. Uh, all right. Jay, what do you got for your second pick of the episode? 
Well, okay, as Mike already called me out for, I went highbrow in the first one because, again, I, I felt like I wanted to talk about a Kubrick movie and, and I didn't want to do the obvious one. So, yeah, I'll, I'll cop to that that I went a little highbrow. I'm bringing it back down, though, to the 80s here, though, not 1985, which seems to be the perfect year for the 20th Century Movie Club. I, I'm going to go for a movie from 1984. And I saw this movie and I, I told you this early in the podcast that you know I grew up in a you know, rather strict religious household but my parents were really open to like entertainment for us because they were big into music and my mother was a big dance fan though we weren't allowed to dance so like I got to see Saturday Night Fever and all that stuff you know growing up but I wasn't allowed to do any of it and there was a movie that came out in 1984 that she took me to the theaters to see because she heard it was so much fun about dancing and of course I'm talking about Footloose from 1984 so when's the last time either of you have seen Footloose? Mike go ahead hello let's take this one first uh probably just a couple of years i watch footloose fairly routinely um it's it's a go-to staple for me so probably i I would say probably about two years ago this is one of the ones that well it it initially fell through the cracks but i think i saw it for the first time when maybe uh maybe i was about 28 29 years old so you know in the 2000s so as you can imagine my my initial reaction to the film was was one of kind of utter what is going on here type <laughs> type of things from from the the scenes where they're playing chicken with Bonnie Tyler's I need a hero they're playing chicken yep. with tractors with Bonnie Tyler's I need a hero playing to the greatest scene in the movie when Kevin Bacon just goes to the sort of the abandoned factory or I don't even say it's abandoned factory sort of the, 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 the whatever the factory is and just dances his problems away and <laughs> I get now I get it like as, mm-hmm. as as I'm I'm older and I'm able to recognize and put myself back in 84 when this film came out like people must have been going ape shit for this movie because it's so much fun so I think it's a fantastic mm-hmm. recommendation Look, the the thing that sells this movie, this is what the the most fun things you can do if you want to like remember the movie, but you, you haven't got time to rewatch it. Just go look at the soundtrack listing. The soundtrack listing in the order that it's in tells you the plot of the movie. Like it absolutely works it down for you, you know, and I'm not going to read it off here because it will we'll stay spoiler level, but go do that for yourself sometime if you've seen the movie, folks, and you'll go like, oh, wow, yeah. And that only revealed itself to me a few years ago when I watched it again and I broke the soundtrack out to listen to it because how can you not? I mean, it's such a toe tapping beat. Kenny Loggins is like soundtrack king of the 80s, you know, because he wrote so many things that we could talk about. But Footloose, I mean, the opening scene that Herbert Ross, who was a you know a cinematographer and was a choreographer and in addition to being a great director. He decided to open this thing up with that beat from Footloose and just people's feet, just dancers in all these different shoes that like kids would wear of the day. And even maybe not kids because there's some dressed up shoes in there, too, of people just you know tapping their toes and dancing. And on the surface, this is a movie about a town that's banned dancing and the kids revolt and they get dancing back. And that is like the 20,000 foot level of it. But there's a lot more going on in this movie. You know, there's a lot of teenage angst drama. There's a lot of cool characters. I mean, Kevin Bacon's awesome in this. Laurie Singer is great as the lead. Sarah Jessica Parker in one of her early roles is there. Chris Penn, who's no longer with us, is there. But Diane Weist and John Lithgow are like the emotional adult center of this. And in in the 80s in particular, it was commonplace to portray adults and religious figures as sort of cartoons of of those things and that they would just be so out of whack that oh yeah there's no way they're in touch and that's not at all how Lithgow and Weist are played at all here he's the reverend in the town and he's really like the mayor in a lot of ways because everybody seems to come to him for stuff and growing up in small towns I can kind of see how that works but he's also a man who's dealt with tragedy and loss and there's a reason you know that that they band dancing and all this kind of stuff in town and you get to see his character art 
work go through this. I mean, Kevin Bacon's pretty much the same, you know, smart act kid from uh, Chicago in the beginning as he is at the end. Lori Singer's the same kind of wild child, you know, preacher's daughter. Um, that the refreshments made a great song about, you know, in the 2000s. Uh, if you want to listen to something fun, they're the same. The char- the the kid characters really don't change that much. Chris Ben kind of learns how to dance, which is funny um, th- to see because he has no coordination at all. <laughs> and apparently that was very real. But Lithgow and Weiss go through a big character arc in this. Yeah, and it's it's definitely one worth revisiting if you haven't done it in a while. You can rent it now on you know Apple and Voodoo and PlayStation and stuff like that. But Footloose is is one of those movies that I I don't know. Even as a kid, I realized there was something more there than just the fun music and the dancing. And the more I've watched it, and I watched it again uh, just a couple weeks ago, getting ready for this. I realized, man, there's so much good drama here. And you see, you know, Kevin Bacon's had an incredible career and he's still working. And you see some of the best of his stuff here. And what's funny is the studio absolutely did not want him at all. Didn't think he was good looking enough. Didn't think he could carry it. And the director and the producers really pushed him. And, you know, of course, this made him into a mega star. Mike, good thoughts on Footloose? I love Footloose. Jake kind of said a lot of what I wanted to say, which is I wanted to just really highlight John Lithgow and Diane Weist. And and, and honestly, this is almost Lithgow's movie. He is the one that has the character arc in this. He is the one who grows and changes. And and what makes him so interesting is he's he's trying to do the right thing. He's not just a cartoon villain. He really believes that what he's doing is right. And, And without getting into spoilers, you know, there's a thing that the town does based on statements he's made that ends up just horrifying him. And that's kind of his impetus for change and also Kevin Bacon gives a there's a great scene where Kevin Bacon gives a, a speech that just gets me all excited every time I see it this is such a classic 80s movie in the sense that it it brings in all these disparate things of 80s teen angst and kind of the changeover from the 70s and the 80s there's just there's a lot going on in this movie for what amounts to a very very you know on surface level, a very silly movie. The other thing I have to shout out, because I got to stay on brand, I love you for recommending a film in Utah movie, Jay. I love it. <laughs> I love it. It's this film filmed at the Lehigh Roller Mills in Utah. I drive past it every day on the way to work. Most of the dancers were, were from a local dance troupe here in Utah in Salt Lake City. So I'm always happy anytime we have filmed in Utah movies on, uh, on the 20th Century Movie Club. The one other thing I want to bring up is I feel like we should at least acknowledge the remake exists oh i have thoughts about that actually yes two, two things real quick if i can jump in for years i was convinced this movie was made like in oklahoma or something like that and it wasn't until i don't know five ten years ago i realized it was utah and i was like oh holy cow you know and having been through that part of utah i'm like oh yeah i totally see it now um but aside of it there's two other things i want to mention it i don't want to sell over how interesting Lori Lori Singer's character Ariel is in this movie. For the 1980s to have a female lead who wasn't just about a boy or just about, you know, star eyes and, you know, dreamy hearts love stuff. She was a woman who had agency. She was a little bit on the, the fringe of things, but she had a plan. She wasn't going to hang around there forever. She was getting out. You know, and yes, yeah, she screwed around with, you know, the local loser because it just passed the time. But she was very much in control of herself. And to see someone who portrayed that in a way in a movie like this it was different at the time. And now, of course, it seems like that's it, you need to write it into your movie. But we were doing this a long time ago, and that doesn't need to get lost in it. The remake, I, 
I actually like parts of the remake. Now, the thing they do that's wrong is they make the preacher character very cartoony, in my opinion. Dennis Quaid's a cartoon. But I like Julianne Huff, and I like the guy that they got to play Ren. They they update the music you know, a good bit. The music's not nearly as good. But for the most part, they do a couple of things that I think make the characters still interesting. And instead of a tractor chicken race, we get like a, a demolition derby, which seems to fit a little bit more uh, for the era. But I, I kind of liked the remake. It wasn't terrible. The biggest problem I have with the remake is they don't change enough. Jay's right. They make some changes that I think are 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 good to update it. But for the most part, it's it, I feel like it's kind of watching a like a cover band. The one thing exactly. I will the one thing I will say is if people like dance movies. There is absolutely no question that the dancing in the remake is a thousand times better. You know, the dancing in the remake is, uh, if I remember correctly, and don't quote me if I'm wrong, or don't hold me to it if I'm wrong, but I think the remake was directed by Kenny Ortega, who is a, you know, phenomenal choreographer. Uh, Most of the, you know, the remake came out in a post-step-up world. When step-up really brought modern dancing modern hip-hop dancing and and stuff like that to to movies and so the dancing in the remake there is a dance scene in the remake that is that doesn't have an analog to the original where they're at like a drive-in and it is fucking fantastic and so i think the remake has merit just for the dancing if nothing else i i would never willingly watch the remake over the original but it's not it's not the uh completely irredeemable you know, dumpster fire that a lot of these remakes are. I think there is value exactly. to it. Yeah, it's not Nightmare on Elm Street 2010 bad. Okay, right. <laughs> like yeah, it's, it's it's, and I just play my hand on that. But yeah, it's not that bad. It's what's cool about it is Jillian Huff even has a little bit more agency as the aerial character, and some of her motivations get explained in this that maybe weren't in the first one. And so I liked that better. But you're right, like the dancing. There's no, there's no comparison. Kevin Bacon can dance. He can't dance like that guy. And so and and Jillian Huff. So you know the the dancing is cool. I almost wish like there was a way to fan edit and put the original music on the new movie but i don't know if it would match right so I, i'm not good at matching beats i was just a rock and roll player so awesome all right mike what do you got for your second pick so for my second pick it's gonna be a kind of probably one of the objectively one of the less good movies i've recommended on this show but i don't care because i love the movie anyway i just rewatched it a couple days ago and i still love it so for those who don't know there is a very very famous japanese uh long-running film series uh in the 60s and 70s called zatoichi the blind swordsman about a wandering samurai a blind wandering samurai who just sort of rolls into these towns and writes wrongs and Tim Matheson of uh, Animal House fame wanted to get into producing and really, really loved. uh, I'm taking a long time to build up to this, but it's fine. Uh, Really wanted to do a remake of Zatoichi. And over a very long time of uh, sort of turnaround development hell, finally kind of pulled something together that is a loose remake of Zatoichi, and that is 1989's Philip Noyce film Blind Fury. For those who haven't seen it, Blind Fury stars Rutger Hauer's Nick Parker, a Vietnam vet who is blinded in Vietnam, and through the help of some very 80s-type 
noble villagers learns how to navigate the world as a blind man, but not just learn how to navigate the world, learn how to fight with a fucking sword while blind. And he then comes back to America to make peace with his friend who he believes abandoned him uh, in the war and finds out that his friend is in trouble with some Reno mobsters because Reno, the hotbed of, uh, I don't know if anybody on this show has ever been to Reno, but wow, it's not a great place. Go south, go to Vegas instead. I I apologize to anybody that lives in Reno. Um, In any case, what Nick has to do is slice and dice a bunch of people. And it is a classic 80s martial arts action movie. I think there are some serious negatives that I'll get into, uh, but I think the uh, the good outweighs the bad, and we've already got a Rucker Howard movie on, on the list with The Hitcher. I'm glad to add another one. We've already got a Philip Noyce movie on the list with Patriot Games. I'm glad to add another one. What Have you, have you guys seen Blind Fury? I'll take this one first. I have not seen this film and I am, I mean, I, I recommended Patriot Games early on in one of the, the second or third uh, volume of this series. And I like Philip Noyce directed films. I, I love Rucker Howard. And I'm a little sad that I haven't seen Blind Fury yet. So I guess that's all I can say about it right now, except uh, I'm adding it to the list. So, Jay, have you seen Blind Fury? Yes, and this is a chance for me to put over a place that no longer exists in the town I grew up in in Alabama, but there used to be this place called Hills Video Store that was just a few miles from where I grew up, and it's the first place I remember us renting VHS movies from, and they didn't care what you rented or how old you were as long as you paid. (laughs) And so I rented this on the recommendation of like playground discussions with friends or whatever, going like, man, this dude's got a sword, and like it's the dude from The Hitcher, and he cuts everybody up, and I was like, what? Because I knew Rutger Hauer as the dude from Night. Hawks, which, uh, you know, maybe another day we can talk about that one. But anyway, I, I was like, oh, Rutger Howard with a sword? I'm down. And so I, I remember watching this as a kid, and I was just enthralled with it. I thought it was so awesome. I think I watched it again in college. It's been since then since I've seen it. I'm so glad you mentioned it again, Mike, because it uh, it's right up. I remember loving it then, and it's definitely right up my alley. And I'm going to text my friend Ron that I do the podcast with, because he is my go-to for like crazy ninja movies, uh, because that's his jam. And so I'm going to ask him, like, how many times have you seen Blind Fury? Because I know he owns it, probably on Laserdisc. Uh, but I, you know, I, I love that movie. It's so much fun it's it's the epitome of a very small window of action movies that we had in the late 80s where you could just be absolutely bug nuts ridiculous and it would still work if you had the right actor in the role and Rutger Hauer is almost always the right actor to do some crazy shit so I'm I'm down for Rutger Hauer Mike I got a question for you was Blind Fury well received when it was released as far as you know it was a little bit of a box office uh, failure, but it actually got some surprisingly good critical reviews for a movie of its type. What I will say, uh, and I, I want to say kind of a couple things on what Jay said, but I'll get to those in a sec. If people decide to watch this, I, I said there's some negatives. Here's the thing. There is a kid in this movie. He's an important part of the movie. He's played by an actor named Brandon Call, who went on to star in uh, Step by Step, the Suzanne Summers show. He is absolutely awful. I feel terrible <laughs> saying that, but he is absolutely terrible. And it almost works because so much of this movie, in addition to being Zatoichi, so much of this movie is Shane. And I think we can all agree if we've seen Shane that the kid in Shane is one of the worst child actors that's <laughs> ever been in a movie. Um, yeah. Well... <laughs> Brandon Call in this is is almost as bad. I almost wonder if it's almost intentional. Like, he's so bad, but he's so much like the kid in Shane that I almost wonder if Philip Noyce was actually, like, telling him to 
act like this kid because he's he's just that bad. Um, that being said, everything else is great. Uh, henchmen in the movie are played by Randall Tex Cobb, Nick Cassavetes, Rick Overton. Uh, the bad the bad guy is Noble Willingham, who, if you don't know him, you know, he's the bad guy in Last Boy Scout. He was he was a major heavy in the 80s and 90s. He was just this big southern guy who was like a perfect bad guy. And Jay, you mentioned that you're you're podcasting partners into crazy ninja movies uh, for those who don't know the big the, the sort of final fight because again not a spoiler to give away that a samurai movie has a final fight uh the final bad guy is played by the immortal shokasugi who starred oh. in such classics as revenge of the ninja ninja 3 the domination i mean shokasugi's a legend and there will be more shokasugi movies recommended on this podcast he did the sword choreography and he plays the final bad guy and and his fight with Rucker Hauer is lovely. Um, Hauer being Hauer, he spent more than a month training with a blind man who was a a, a martial arts a, a martial arts expert blind man. Um, just so Hauer could kind of get the vibe down and how to move and stuff like that. One of the things I love most about this movie is, you know, Dana, you recommended The Hitcher and and, and we kind of talked about the level of malevolence that Rucker Hauer can bring to a role, how how he can be so just scarily evil. But the uh, and, and Jay, you mentioned Nighthawks. He's the same in that movie. But the other thing that Hauer can do that that I think uh, people don't give him necessarily enough credit for is he's got such a twinkle in his eye when he wants to play sort of a lighter hearted, happy kind of character. And he's got that in this movie. He's so this starts. This is right at the beginning of the movie. So I'm not giving away a big spoiler is the scene. He's walking down a road. He's got his cane and he's, you know, he's filling around. And it's in the movie starts in Florida and there's a gator in the road and he he kind of hits the gator with his cane and he just goes, ah, uh, nice doggy. And then steps over the gator <laughs> and keeps walking. And just the way he delivers it, there's just such a lightness and a twinkle to the way he delivers all his lines in this movie. He's just a goddamn delight in this thing. So if you're a Rucker Hauer fan, this is absolutely a movie that you need to see because he's so good in it. You know, I can just- You mentioned- Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, go, go, go ahead, Jay, please. Mike, you mentioned Revenge of the Ninja. I can thank Ron specifically for bringing that movie into my life because he and I reviewed it back in the day on on Filmstrip. And I still own a copy of it because of that, because I was just so blown away by that movie. I love that movie. So, yeah, I'm definitely going to have to go back and rewatch Blind Fury now. Here's the way I've always described Rutger Hauer's thing or whatever is he has a very quiet anger to him. It's in his eyes. You know, he doesn't have to raise his voice. He doesn't have to scream and shout or rant and rave. He can do that. But he really just kind of looks at you. And, you know, I, I think about those scenes in The Hitcher. And he's like, I just want you to say, I want to die. You know, and just the way he can do that stuff. He's just so good. And he's he's one of our, our treasures on cinema. And I'm glad he's getting some love here on this show. I was just going to mention that, Mike, you, you mentioned Step by Step. And I immediately made the martial arts connection between... The, the the was it Brandon Call was the the little boy, yep. Okay, and then of course step by step famously had Sasha Mitchell in it. And the yep. question uh, I have is, is Sasha Mitchell. Do you think any of his films ever make the 20th Century Movie Club? Yes, I think they're uh, where 
we there's a lot of movies beforehand, but I will actually go to bat for uh, Kickboxer Two. So that might that that it, it's a ways down the road, but Kickboxer Two might be a stay tuned at some point. And, uh, if this show makes it three or four years down the road, I, I could see myself recommending Kickboxer Two. And if I could just say one thing about Revenge of the Ninja, like any child of the '80s, we, we were absolute. My friends and I were absolutely obsessed with all things ninja and. The only movie I owned, the only ninja film that I had was Revenge of the Ninja, which was, I don't even remember. I think it was dubbed from a, from a, it was a dub VHS from a dub VHS to a dub VHS. And it was the poorest quality you've ever seen. But I can remember that movie from beginning, middle to end without missing a beat. That is my all time favorite ninja film. So, and by the way, didn't realize it was filmed in Utah until <laughs> years later. But, uh, that's my favorite of the ninja films. And Chokasugi is, is just awesome in that film. So I just wanted to just mention that I'm, I share your admiration for Revenge of the Ninja as well. I think Mike and I've had that conversation on Twitter as well about our, our love for Ninja films and Revenge of the Ninja and Ninja Three and all that kind of stuff. So that's that's a blast that came out. You mentioned something earlier until we talked about Footloose. You mentioned Step Up. You it, there's a lens of which you can watch the Step Up movies, and they're just kung fu movies with dancing. Absolutely, they they yeah. absolutely, especially not that I want to go on a deep dive on Step Up, but Step Up Three, if anybody has seen it, it's literally about warring martial arts tribes only yes. their dance contests. Like <laughs> it is one hundred percent a kung fu movie. Yeah, awesome. All right, Jay, what do you got for your third pick of the episode? Well, look, I, you know, I I talked early on. I love slasher movies, horror movies. They would pull my horror movie cred card if I didn't come on here and drop a a slasher movie from the 20th century. And good grief. It's not like there's not a bunch of them to mention. But I picked one out from 1996 that is kind of a, a greatest hits of all the things you love about slasher movies. And it also changed everything in horror movies for a decade. I'm talking about Scream. Uh, Wes Craven, Kevin Williamson's story about the... Uh, teenage girl who a year after the murder of her mother is terrorized by a mysterious killer wearing a really cheap Halloween outfit that you could buy at your five and dime. And it's all of the horror cliches of the past into one big, you know, the greatest hits kind of film, but has a nice twist to it. And I credit a lot of that to Williamson and the way he writes. But I saw this in theaters and didn't know what it was. When it came out, I just remember looking at the poster going, that looks kind of wild. Took my girlfriend at the time who hated horror movies, by the way. This is why we're not together anymore. One of the many reasons. But went to that. She hated it. Ripped it apart. And I'm sitting there going like, that's from Halloween. That's from prom night. That's, I'm, I'm doing the Jamie Kennedy role because I'm a big nerd. And I loved it. And I, I own this thing on VHS. I own it on DVD. I have it on streaming now. I mean, I, I can watch Scream anytime. And right now it's streaming on Netflix. I watched it last night because I thought, you know, I know this movie front to back, but I'm going to watch it again because you can always pick up on something a little bit new. And it's neat to have a movie that mints a ton of actors that you see for years to come. David Arquette, Nev Campbell, Courtney Cox, Matthew Lillard, Rose McGowan, Skeet Ulrich, Drew Barrymore, all of them still doing things. And for Barrymore, this was really her reintroduction back into society, having been the you know the child star that went completely left field and awry, and then got herself together and you know the big the big Janet Lee scare at the beginning. I love Scream. The sequels, I got thoughts about. Maybe we can get into those in a bit. But the original Scream, man, put it right up there on my shelf of, of you know favorite horror movies ever. What I'd like to say about Scream is just a few things. One one thing you touched on, you know, this came out in 96. I can recall that this was a movie that was, 
I thought I, from what I understand, and I did do a deep dive episode on Scream, which coincidentally, Jay, I was going to re- be releasing next week as one of my hit 'em rewind episodes. <laughs> so that's that's great timing. But from what I understand and what I remember is that this is a movie that actually started doing better weeks after it released. This was one of those you know people were talking about it, word of mouth films, and and it single handedly saved the horror genre. Because by this point, horror movies, slasher films, they, they were DOA. No pun intended. They were they were done. They, no studios weren't going to make them. They were being relegated to you know films released by Full Moon Entertainment, direct to video. They were done. And this movie is what's so charming about the film. As you mentioned, it has all these homages to all these slasher films that we know. But it's also so self aware and so meta, and something that Jim Hemphill. Who uh, writer director Jim Hempel, who came on my show and we did a a great retrospective on on Wes Craven. One thing he mentioned to me was that he credits uh, a movie came out in '94, Wes Craven's New Nightmare, as sort of the first film to go meta for Craven and really sort of light the spark that that gave Craven the the you know the, the passion to do Scream based off of Williams's script. I saw it in the theater. I was blown away. It, you know, the, on the strength of Scream, I saw Scream 2 day one. You know, we'll get into the sequels in just for a moment. But this is a quintessential classic on the level, in my opinion, on the level of Halloween, the original Elm Street, the original Friday the 13th. I mean, these are seminal films that I believe this one is in the same pantheon. So, Mike, what are your thoughts on Scream? So, damn you, Jay. Uh, so I have, I've mentioned before, I have a list, uh, a private letterbox list of movies that I want to recommend. And in that list, I have a section for movies that I wanted to recommend in October as for Scary Movie Month. And, you know, Scream was one of them. So thanks for that, Jay. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, what can you say about Scream? Uh, you know, everybody that's listening to the show knows I'm a horror guy. Like, my my genres are action and horror. I'm a horror guy. This movie's amazing. It, it, it's one of the most amazing horror movies that's ever been made. Uh, Dana, to one thing that you said, so I just pulled it up on Box Office Mojo. Scream opened at $6.3 million. It grossed $103 million. So its multiplier was what? 11? Yeah. Even more than that. Like, I mean, that's unheard of. Like, that just, you'd never see that now. And, and you didn't even see it then. I mean, for a movie to open that low and then end up grossing more than $100 million is mind-blowing. And what that tells you is, like you said, horror, you know, and I will defend 90s horror. I think there's a lot better 90s horror movies out there than people think. But nonetheless, box office-wise, especially the slasher genre, was in a lull. And what this says is, people saw it that opening weekend and went and told all their friends because then Scream 2 opened huge. I mean, it opened massively the weekend it opened. So over the course of that year, you just had this big buildup. I think this movie's genius. I think it's absolutely brilliant. Uh, I, I don't, it's one of the the handful of, I think, absolute five-star horror movies that are out there. I, there's nothing I would change about it. There's nothing I would do differently. I think everything about it works. I'm assuming, you know, at least a good portion of people have seen it, but I still don't want to get into spoilers. But I think the plot twists and turns are both remarkably well set up and brilliantly executed. For my money, 
this is, and this is no slight to Nightmare, but for my money, this is Wes Craven's best movie. I think this is where everything that Wes Craven brings to the table is at its A-game. Couple that with Kevin Williamson's just absolutely genius script. Uh, I think you get as close to a perfect horror movie as has ever been made. I, I I can't say any more about it other than that. I love this movie. I, I just like to say this about what you just said, mentioned, uh, Mike, about Scream being Wes Craven's uh, best film. I'm not going to disagree with you on that one. I'm not because I mean, you look at the original Elm Street and there's, there's some glaring issues with that film. However, to me, it is still Elm Street is still the scariest film that Wes Craven has made. But I will I will concede to you that I think Scream is probably his best film as well. Yeah, I mean, Elm Street's definitely scarier. I don't think there's any question about it. And like I said, this is no slight to Elm Street. Like, like we haven't recommended Elm Street yet because why would we? Like, it's a classic. Everybody should have already seen that movie. But if you haven't, I'm just going to go ahead and say you need to watch fucking Nightmare on Elm Street. No, Elm Street's definitely scarier. But I just think this one... I will say I go back to this one more than I go back to Elm Street because I just think this is such a fun time, too. It's scary, but it also is just so much fun. The characters are likable um, and, and, you know, and it's not a true horror comedy. It's because it's still scary. There's some really tense scenes in this movie. But yeah, I just, oh God, I love Scream. Jay, I love you for recommending. Other than you stole one from me that I'm going to (laughs) recommend later. I love you for recommending this movie. This is so good. I'll tell you the other thing that Scream led me down the path of, because I had gotten to the point where I was the only person defending 90s horror movies to my friends, so I was like holding my own little campfire. And then this this got everybody interested in seeing all the stuff that I was into as well. But it also introduced me to this snappy, kind of back-and-forth dialogue that is totally a part of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, which I was a massive fan of. Brian and I did seven seasons worth of retrospectives on that. That's called The Art of Slaying. You can go and listen to this if you want to. But that type of fast fire who done it dialogue and this group of people that are trying to figure it out it's very scooby doo in a lot of ways too resonated with my generation at that time cuz i was in college when this came out it was right in my wheelhouse and it it was funny it was it was so much more on point than the way a lot of like teen dramas i thought sort of petition the way people talk and, I, and I'll, I'll dig on Williamson. Dawson's Creek is kind of a fun show, but I didn't know anybody taught like that in high school. I didn't know anybody taught like that in grad school. All right. So the, the, the language wasn't there, but like Buffy and this people sounded like that. And I, everybody, I mean, I had a friend in high school that is exactly what you know, Matthew Lillard was in this movie, which is basically just shaggy. And I, he probably was smoking weed. I don't know. But I mean, he's very much that kind of guy. And this thing just hits so many buttons for me. And it opened up a door for people to go and access movies that they had maybe skipped. Cause I don't like slasher movies. I don't like horror movies, but then they all get into this and like, well, let me go see that Halloween movie that they're talking about all the time. Let me go see Friday the 13th. Let me see nightmare. And it reintroduced those to a brand new audience. And it also got, you know, studios to put money and funding and interesting, you know, fun, young, young and up and coming actors into, a, you know, just a glut of these movies for about the next 10 years. Let me ask you this. I'll, uh, I'll ask you, uh, because we could spend a couple hours probably dwelling on the subject. So I'll just ask you really quick. You first, Jay, then you, Mike. Scream 2, 3, and 4. What are your thoughts on the films? Scream 2 is good. Worth it. Scream 3, no. If they had never made Scream 2 and 3 and then come back with Scream 4, it would have worked. But because it's got all that baggage, it doesn't quite work for me. Mike? 
So I actually um, am going to break from tradition here a little bit. Scream 2 is my least favorite. And, and I'll, I'll without, like you said, Dana, we could do all, an entire episode on Scream. I will just say there are a couple of things in Scream 2, a couple of ways characters act, a couple of scenes that happen that I think fall into dumb slasher tropes that the first Scream managed to avoid. Scream 3 I like a little better just because I think it is so ridiculous. What I will defend is I think Scream 4 is really solid. I think Scream 4, and Jay's right, had they not done Scream 2 and 3, Scream 4 I think would have been a a bigger uh, success and would have worked better, but I'm still able to kind of separate that. I I think for people who haven't seen Scream 4, there's definitely some interesting things in it. I think it kind of misfired. I was just listening to the shockwaves podcast and they were kind of talking about this that yet again Wes craven was about 10 years ahead of his time because without going into spoilers so much of scream 4 is about social media and stuff like that and uh and i think had it come out a few years later it would have worked i mean we live in a social media age where we can all agree that social media is a toxic nuclear waste dump and and so i think scream 4 does work a little better so i would if i was ranking them i would rank them scream way up top a little bit farther down scream 4 and then kind of farther down from that scream 3 and then scream 2 all right for me i saw actually this is one of the interesting franchises that i saw all four in the theater i I, i'll admit to not seeing the first scream opening weekend because i was one of those ones that was hit by the word of mouth but i did see two three and years later four on opening weekend i respect the fact that you have the same behind the scenes crew you have the same director so you know i feel like the continuity was there a little bit better than say other franchises that would just continuously pump out sequels for the sake of sequels. I liked Scream 2 the first time I saw it. I think it's not a movie I've I've had any interest in revisiting. Not a huge fan of Scream 3. And just to kind of sum it up, I, I, I'll admit, I, I enjoyed the hell out of Scream 4. So I want to say say one last thing though. If you either of you haven't tried it, I would put a recommend for the MTV Screen TV series, the two seasons that they did. It's actually pretty good. Like it, I, it's not made for us. It's not made for our age range. But I enjoyed it. My wife and I both binge watched it, and we enjoy it. So I'd, I'd put a little a little uh, candle out there for the Screen TV show. It's pretty good. Awesome, Mike. Have you seen the Screen TV show? I have not. I- I haven't. I need to. I, and I'm glad that, uh, Jay, that you recommended it because that's I trust your opinion on things. So I will actually I'll probably wait until October to watch it, but I'll, I'll give it a shot in October. Excellent. All right, Mike, we're going to turn it over to you to round out the episode with the with your final pick. So for anybody that's listened to the episode that we recorded on Endgame, it's pretty clear I love my comic book movies. And one of the things that's kind of a bummer for me about doing the 20th Century Movie Club is we don't have a ton of comic book movies that we can recommend. I I mean, I'm never going to recommend Superman or Batman because everybody's kind of seen those. Um, But I am going to take the opportunity to recommend one of the, the ones that occurred before the year 2000 that is one of my absolute favorite comic book movies. I think it's one of the best ones. It's just such a delightfully fun time at the movies. And that is 
Joe Johnston's 1991 comic book adaptation, The Rocketeer. For those who haven't seen The Rocketeer, it's based on a comic by the dearly departed Dave Stevens uh, that he started in the 80s. It was a throwback to sort of the cliffhanger serials of, of the 30s and 40s, wherein a pilot by the name of Cliff Secord comes across a uh, a rocket pack that can be attached to your back and allow you to fly like a rocket. And uh, it... Stevens kind of pulled it from a an old 30s serial called The King of the Rocket Men, and, and he pulls in a bunch of other stuff. And the movie really does a fantastic job of incorporating the look, the aesthetic of a 1930s serial. It's very much like a uh, sort of, you know, everybody likes the Indiana Jones movies because they have that 1930s serial vibe. I actually think I'm not sliding the Indiana Jones movies in the slightest, but I almost think The Rocketeer does it better. It just has such a unique classic look to it bill campbell plays uh cliff and most importantly it's not her first movie but it's the movie that put her on the map jennifer Connolly plays his uh girlfriend jenny uh who in the comics is based on pinup legend betty page who dave stevens had become a very very close friend with not to get too uh you know male here but Man, if you haven't seen Jennifer Connelly in this movie, you really need to because she is revelatory uh, in her beauty in this movie. Um, have either of you guys seen The Rocketeer? I'll go first on this one just for uh, – I saw The Rocketeer on home video you know, shortly after it became available on home video. Hadn't seen it since. Didn't, you know, had, I guess I had fond memories. Every time someone would bring up The Rocketeer, I would say, yeah, that's, that's a good movie. So to give a shout out to Red Letter Media, who recently did a, one of their reviews uh, on The Rocketeer, I settled in to watch the 30, 40 minute long review of the film and had to stop after about 10 minutes because I realized that I remembered nothing about this film. So it's on my short list of films that I need to rewatch. I can say, yes, technically I've seen it, but I honestly don't remember much about it. And I'm glad to see that uh, it's starting to get a bit of a resurgence. I think people are starting to talk about it. And I, I think we've got the, like you said, Mike, we've got sort of got the comic book boom that we're living through right now that has people revisiting these older films. So I'm really excited to, to rewatch the film. Jay? I have seen it. I saw this when I was a kid. I believe it was a, it was a home rental. Didn't see it in theaters. I, not a big comic book guy. Loved the movies, though. But I put this in a vein of movies that I always liked growing up that nobody else seemed to ever want to talk about. It was The Rocketeer, The Shadow, and The Phantom. You know, the, there was like they all came out with about four or five years of each other, and it, they were comic book or comic strip adaptations. And I don't know, for whatever reason, they just didn't work, whatever. But I will hold a candle for all of those. And Rocketeer is probably the most wholesome of them. And I think it's the most accessible. And I watched it again, gosh, it's probably been seven or eight years now. I may have caught it on on television or just, you know, rented it and watched it again uh, from like Netflix when I was doing the disc thing or whatever. But it had been a long time since I'd seen it. But it it works so so well. And Mike, I'll join you in that uh, cheerleading camp for Jennifer Connelly because I was all about some of that too uh, as, as a kid growing up. She was just drop dead gorgeous and also a very fun character. But that that whole movie is just fun. It I think sometimes like those movies now are there. They seem to have to carry so much self-seriousness and, and other weight. And they're trying to say all these other things when sometimes they, you know, the best ones were just the, the serialized fun ones. And that falls in the line with, you know, again, the shadow, the phantom and Indiana Jones, those kind of films. So I, I like it, but it's been a long time since I've seen it. So now I want to go back and rewatch it. Mike, any, any closing thoughts on it? Yeah. Just a couple of things. One, <laughs> 
again, it's weird how patterns form. I didn't intend to do this, but uh, I didn't mention him in uh, Blind Fury, but Blind Fury also co-stars Terry O'Quinn, and he co-stars in The Rocketeers, Howard Hughes. So I didn't mean to recommend two Terry O'Quinn movies this week, <laughs> but I did. It just happened. What I do want to say is, is for people who are uh, younger listeners, uh, Joe Johnston has directed several movies, but his biggest Arguably his biggest hit and his best movie is Captain America, the first Avenger. And he got that movie directly because Marvel and Kevin Feige liked what he did on the Rocketeer. So if you're an MCU fan and you've seen Captain America, the first Avenger, and you like that movie, I think there's a real high likelihood that you will like this one because it has very much the same vibes. I mean, you got Nazis as bad guys. You got you got a hero that's kind of a normal guy who is given a power in Cap's case. It's be, you know, through genetic engineering and in Cliff's case, it's through the rocket pack, but who is just a guy who's driven to do the right thing. This is just, it's such a fun movie and and Jay's right. It's, you know, we can talk about the other ones, the the shadow I've got some problems with. I will, I will go to bat for the phantom until I die. I love that movie. But I think of the three, this is really the best one. And, uh, and it just, it's just a, a really nice movie. And for comic fans, if you, Grew up reading The Rocketeer like I did. The Rocketeer was one of the first sort of independent comics I got into. This is also one of the most accurate translations. You know, we spent so much time in the 80s and 90s just being mad at how they would make these comic book movies and then they wouldn't do them justice. This one is really good. There's some changes that they had to make to make it a a complete movie because The Rocketeer wasn't even finished at the time that they started making the movie. But this is really an accurate translation, and I really admire that, that they they spent the money to get this right. Um, and so if you haven't seen it and you like, even if you don't like comic book movies, if you just like sort of swashbuckling, entertaining, and yes, it's a Disney movie, so it is family friendly. So if you've got kids, this is a good one to introduce to them. I, I think this is just a great movie. Okay, so what we like to do at the end of each episode is we want to let the listeners know where they can find the movies that were recommended. Mike, I'm going to turn it over to you first. Sure. So my first recommendation, Summer School, is available on Vudu, YouTube, iTunes, all of your basic streaming services for rental or purchase. But if you have a Showtime subscription, it is also available on Showtime, either through the Showtime Anywhere app or the Showtime Amazon channel. Uh, So if you have a subscription, you can watch it there. Both Blind Fury and the Rocketeer are not currently streaming anywhere for free, but they are available for rental or purchase on all of your major streaming sites. The Rocketeer did just get a Blu-ray release a couple of years ago that is pretty decent. Uh, So if you like physical media, pick that up. And I do want to also mention, because it is definitely a streaming service we'll be talking about when it comes out, uh, it has been announced that it will be a day one uh, availability on the Disney Plus streaming service when that launches in November. Okay. Now, Jay, I know you mentioned throughout the episode where these films, where your selections were located, but if you could just recap that for us, please. 
Certainly. So Passive Glory right now is if you have a subscription to the Criterion channel, you can watch it there, but you can also rent it on YouTube, Vudu, Apple, Google Play. Footloose, you can rent on Apple, Vudu, and play the PlayStation Network right now. And Scream is actually streaming on Netflix as of now, but you can also rent it on Amazon, YouTube, Google Play, Apple, Vudu, kind of everywhere that, that it exists. So that's where mine are. Excellent. Now, Jay, if people, once again, if people want to follow you on social media, uh, where can they find you and your podcast? Absolutely. Well, you can follow me. My, it's my name, Jay Skipworth, J-Y, and then spell out Skipworth. I'm at Jay Skipworth on Twitter. You can follow the podcast at Filmstrip Pod and just search for Filmstrip Podcast and all of your podcatchers. And our website is filmstrippodcast.com. You might have heard me name drop to my old Buffy podcast, which we have finished with now, but it's still available on uh, iTunes and other places. It's called The Art of Slaying. And Brian and I went through seven seasons of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, every episode reviewed. And then we did one season of Angel as well before we realized there wasn't much left to say. And so uh, that's that's where you can find us. Awesome. All right, uh, Mike, people want to follow you on social media? I am at Hibachi Justice on Twitter, and I'm also at Hibachi Justice on Letterboxd, where, as I, I remind everybody every week, you can find our ongoing updating list of all of our recommendations on the 20th Century Movie Club. I, I update it about two days, two to three days after each episode drops, uh, so that way you can go back and kind of see uh, what all of our recommendations have been. And honestly, now that we're getting, I think we're going to be at almost 60 movies after this episode. I kind of need the list to make sure I don't re-recommend <laughs> movies we've already talked about. So yeah. it's very handy to have. So if you want to follow this podcast on Twitter, it's at Dana Buckler Show. If you want to follow me personally, my Twitter account is at Dana Buckler. You can follow the show on Instagram at the Dana Buckler Show. And you can always email the show with questions or comments at the Dana Buckler Show at gmail.com. Yeah, just wanted to say thank you again, Dana, for having me on. Thank you for having Mike and Ashley on and, and doing this. I, again, been listening to your show from back when it was How Is This Movie and now the transition to the Dana Buckler Show and all the features you've got here. It's it's in my rotation of podcasts every week and will remain so. So thank you again for having me on. I really enjoy talking movies with you guys and uh, on and offline. I'm glad to be able to do it as part of the podcast oh, now. Listen, Jay, it was awesome having you on, man. And you brought your A game right out of the gate. And I really that, that it's just been awesome talking with you. So thank Thank you so much. Yeah, and Jay, it's been a pleasure having you on, man. It's been really nice to, to actually talk to you. Uh, I guess technically not in person, but at least voice to voice. It, it's been great exactly. having you on, man. All right. So, uh, Jay, Mike, thanks for being on the show. Thank you. Thank you. And my name is Dana Buckler, and thank you so much for listening. <laughs>